When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, I'm based in Derry, Northern Ireland and as always I'm joined by my good friend Sebastian Kaplan in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hey Seb. Glenn, good to see you. And you and hello everybody. Today we're going to be exploring the really important issue of burnout and compassion fatigue. But before we get into that Seb, maybe you could remind people about how they can contact us. On Twitter, our handle is at Change Talking. On Facebook, you can reach us at Talking to Change. And on Instagram, you can reach us at Talking to Change Podcast. And any email correspondence for us, any ideas for new episodes, any questions that you might have, you can contact us at podcast at glennhines.com. And just a brief note about our audience ship. Very excited. Recently, to discover that we had crossed the 200,000 download threshold. So that was wonderful. And based on our database, we've been downloaded or accessed in 142 countries around the world. So really excited that this has become a worldwide project. Yeah, that's very exciting. So again, thank you for everybody who's been part of that journey with us. And today's journey is exploring, as we say, the burnout and compassion fatigue. And having spoken with Kristen and Ali, what were the standout points for you then, Seb? We were thrilled to have Kristen and Ali join us, both friends and colleagues within the EMI network of trainers. And I think as our podcast often unfolds in this way, that the topic that we can go outside the bounds of MI to discuss our topic, and that's certainly what we did. We addressed even just clarifying all the different terms that are used to describe and to capture the experiences of burnout or compassion fatigue, and then some others. And we got a bit into MI itself and some of the, for instance, the elements of the MI spirit and how those might contribute to a reduction in burnout amongst practitioners. And then we even got into some bigger picture organizational ideas, how managers and leadership can use MI specifically, but even just some of the main spirit elements to help with workplace culture and that sort of thing. So those are the things that really stood out to me. Mm. What about you, Glenn? Yeah, alongside of that, it was just the opportunity to spend that hour with two heart-centered people. Helping helpers stay well while helping was really what struck me there, was just how considered and kind and thoughtful and wise Kristen Dempsey and Ali Hall are and how well they work together in this search and I, like you say, that willingness to explore not just the needs of the individual, but to take into account the needs of organizations, particularly given the 16 months of the pandemic and how to respond to that. So we really hope you enjoy the episode. We normally start the episode with a conversation exploring the practitioner's journey into motivation. And I wonder if that would be okay for us to start with you today. It's just a bit about yourself and your journey into motivation. 
I'm Kristen. And my journey came, I think I first started to do motivational interviewing probably over 20 years ago. And I was working in a program that was a family therapy organization, but we had as our specialization working with individuals who also had substance use challenges of all sorts. And many people were mandated to our agency and we worked all along the developmental lifespan. Fantastic training. Only one thing was missing, which was really how to engage people. So many people came in who didn't necessarily really want to be there. So that's when I happened to come across this motivational interviewing thing. And it was immediately love at first try. We're like, this is exactly what I need. And uh, there's an article I'm referred to later by Annie Fahey about this idea of being a substance use counselor and finding motivational interviewing and realizing this is what I need. So it was important for preventing my burnout and allowing me to work in this field for over 25 years. And I was fortunate enough to be involved in the motivational interviewing network of trainers starting in 2008. For me, really, maybe it's that I just do everything the hard way, but I was immersed in a treatment center that really specialized in a confrontational approach, made it quite an art, in fact, and prized itself on its great success rates with the most difficult to serve people. We had a 10% success rate and wasn't that great with these really difficult people not worried at all about the 90% that we were driving away and how to be more effective with them. So being introduced to MI was a little bit like stumbling across a full canteen in the middle of the desert and just everything made sense after that. So the contrast couldn't have been more clear. Ways to engage people successfully and helping them move towards their cherished goals and dreams rather than an imposing or installing approach. So never looked back, I didn't. So both of you came to it, it sounds like in slightly different ways. Kristen, maybe for you, it was, you had a lot of the critical components of an agency and perhaps some good methodology. And there was the missing piece, this last element, which really sparked your interest, certainly. And it provided you something that you were looking for without maybe even knowing you were looking for it. And Allie, it sounds like you use the desert image to describe how things were for your agency and for your clients and really a desperate need to find something to meet the needs of so many that the agency were missing. That's really true. I can speak to the fact that way I was trained in family systems work and also in this program, the agency I worked in was doing a lot of very early work around understanding neurobiology of addiction, for instance. And that work was just so important. It was so critical and it answered so many questions. I think that certainly many people in our community were looking for and many families so greatly needed. And this engagement link with MI, it is so profound. and It was so important. It's like, we know what to do when people are on board, but man, how do we get them there? Especially when we have a large family and this idea of identified patients and all the challenges that come with someone struggling with various addictions, right? There's different ways to engage and MI helps us explore like where to get started. So it was such an important missing for me, critical link. Yeah. And at the same time, the way I came to it, and then for the organization as an implementation concern, it became really a transformation from the inside out, which there are many right ways to do this stuff. And that ended up being a really profound transformation for an agency to undertake and required some pretty deep soul searching. Mm, quite significant process that you're describing there, that idea that that internal change 
And I guess that that, in many ways, we've explored in other episodes, that the work that the individual practitioner does or experiences as they learn and develop and practice motivation. But what you're describing is it's not just the individual practitioner, it's the, the whole organisation going through a transition and just looking at the experience of being curious about why are we being successful with 10 10%. And equally curious, why are we missing out on 90%? And I guess a lot of the listeners will recognise that there's variations of those numbers, but there's lots of times where people could do with our help but choose not to engage with us. And it's almost like you're describing it, Kristen, that what motivational interviewing offered was, it's almost like an onboarding. It's about that, how do I connect with this individual to begin to offer them the other aspects of what it is we offer, whether it be family systemic therapy or CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy that it's working with in conjunction. So I guess maybe that's the theme of what we're exploring so far, is just the actual working together, working together with other approaches, working together with each other, and working together with our clients. So really quite interesting. We're really looking forward to explore that with you in a bit more detail. But one of the things we're also curious about is, how did you two get together? How did you come to this place where you are working together? We had to talk about this because we've been working together for a while. When did we actually get to know each other? And I think we started to connect probably out of motivational interviewing trainers forum about 11, 10 years ago. And I've really benefited from Ali's incredible ability to reach out and collaborate and get things started. So Ali has this wonderful characteristic of really bringing people in. And it's a great example of how she uses her leadership, which I'm so grateful for, and many are. And probably more recently, in the last five years ago, I was able to work with Ali on bringing some fidelity tools for working with motivational interviewing. Some of you might know the motivation interviewing treatment integrity tool and the Motivational Interviewing Clinical Assessment Tool, which Alice helped develop. And we brought it to some places in Northern California to help train providers in those tools, which was absolutely terrific. It really upped our game in terms of training in California. And then more recently, especially in the last year, we've been doing some collaboration around doing some motivational interviewing and dialectical behavior therapy integration. on basically we'll webcast like this and providing them free to the community. So those are just a couple of things. I think there's probably a couple more. Ali, I might have missed some. Well, no, and I was deeply grateful to meet Kristen and actively brainstorm any opportunity to reach out to her and find ways for us to work together. Excellent collaborator, creative, insightful, just the heart set and mindset that she brings to our collaborations. I routinely make excuses to pitch more ideas to her so we can continue working together. Well, like with many of the friendships that we share, meeting at a motivational interviewing forum is certainly something that we can all relate to. It's basically our version of a conference, and it is a really stimulating event, both intellectually, but many lifelong friendships are born in that setting. So it sounds like that's certainly the case for the two of you. And it's a collaboration that's certainly centered around MI, but you've expanded that to some of the other clinical specialty areas like dialectical behavior therapy that you mentioned, Kristen. Maybe you can start to tell us a bit about your interest in burnout and compassion fatigue and the work or the at least the thinking that you all have been doing around this topic. Thank you, Sebastian. And maybe I'll get started by first of all telling you a little bit about my immediate interest in this. So that, of course, brings in this last 15 months that we've been going through all of us. And As we talk about the pandemic in particular, you'll hear people saying things like problems, challenges, inequities, concerns 
that have been in our communities and our cultures all along are really started to surface, really started to surface in some of this environment. And I think what we became interested in is some of the culture, um, some of the structural issues that many behavioral health providers have been working in that have already created fatigue and stress really got kicked into high gear in this last year where everyone all of a sudden really needs our support. I know for the first maybe month, six weeks of the pandemic in March, things got real quiet, both in my private practice and in my training. And then things just exploded just with all kinds of needs. And much of the training I did last year was for agencies wanting me to talk with their staff, not just about motivational interviewing, but also just about working online and just dealing with their incredible amounts of stress that the folks are dealing with. And so I also noticed that 2020 was one thing. People were getting through the year they're challenged. And in California, had another layer of stress because our fire season started early. And so we're in the middle of absolute climate crisis in California, as you might know. So that's another level of stress among providers because they're often doing emergency response. So I found 2020, people were very stressed, of course, but pulling through. And for me, I know personally that when we turned the corner into 2021, that's when a lot of folks really started to get really raw terms of clients as well as clinicians, it's harder to see the long term and when is this going to end and what's the plan here? So the compassion fatigue, the burnout, these things, they're starting to bubble up more. And so I'll just say this and then come on to let Ali speak with her thoughts about this, but just to define some terms, we know this becomes very confusing, right? What's secondary traumatic stress and compassion fatigue versus burnout? What are we talking about here? And so we're thinking of the secondary traumatic stress, compassion fatigue, sometimes called vicarious traumatization. It's kind of the state of exhaustion or dysfunction. It can happen biologically, physiologically, socially, spiritually. That happens as a result of a lot of exposure to compassion stress, to hearing people's stories. And that's certainly an occupational hazard for folks we're working with. Bit different from burnout in general, which is really more about anybody can have burnout. And it certainly crosses occupation, can be, and whenever we feel unsatisfied, powerless, overwhelmed at work, and certainly compassion fatigue can lead to burnout. So that's a concern we have. And one last thing I'll say that just added a little topper to this year was this idea of shared trauma, that it's not just we're working with folks in the community who are really stressed. We have that stress too. We're worried about our families. We're worried about our safety. We're dealing with, in this case, fires and smoke as well. So it becomes another layer of difficulty for providers. Thanks for clarifying those terms, Kristen. And excellent question, Glenn. It's hard to follow the thread all the way back. Like Where, where did this whole thing start? In my career before behavioral health and before April, before MI, <laughs> is in organizational behavior, organization design, work motivation, all of that stuff. And so I was very familiar with organizational responses to stress, burnout, and so on from that perspective. And I guess it was interesting to me that when I moved into behavioral health, that the responsibility for resolving secondary trauma, burnout, and other things was really placed at the feet of the individual. It was curious to me that there weren't more organizational responses, or there wasn't, because it really is a both-and thing. Top five causes of secondary trauma and burnout are really organizationally placed, and yet we rely on the individual to solve all of their own problems. And it is something that's a both-and, I think. But interestingly, I give much credit to child welfare, and some criminal justice organizations that tried to figure out how can we help our clinicians best. And so they took a little bit more of an organizational approach to this. So very appreciative of that. 
developing some programs early on, even before I met Kristen, interestingly, or around implementing solutions for resolving and addressing secondary trauma, particularly in high-stress workplaces like prisons, like child welfare agencies, what it takes to do that. I guess I've just been an eager student of secondary trauma ever since that time. Mm. And again, what's interesting is that what you're identifying is that before the two of you met, before the two of you got into this type of line, what you're identifying was these issues were around, trauma was around, secondary trauma was around, burnout was around, and as well as that, people's efforts to respond to it were around. And what you've been doing is exploring what is it that people need and that idea that as we turned into 2021, the world just went enough already and are clamoring for support. So what we're curious about then is where does motivational interviewing fit into this response for you? I'll talk generally at first and then I think you can get more specific examples. For me, the thing I'd like to really speak about in terms of motivational interviewing is about the spirit. So whether or not we're working with motivational interviewing at the level of like individual practitioner certainly at the level of someone receiving services, but also in terms of organization. So you've had folks here speaking about motivational interviewing for leadership and organization, that the thread that goes through all of them and certainly interventions as well, but more importantly, the global thread about the values and attitudes, that motivational interviewing standard MI, that motivational interviewing for leadership and organizations, the thing that really glues it all together values-wise is about having the spirit, the spirit of working in collaboration, the spirit in giving people voice, the evocation, helping people be evocative, which is incredibly empowering and believe so much of burnout is about being disempowered. The idea of having compassion, and we'll speak to this a little bit later about this idea of compassion, stress being a real cause of burnout, but how can we have more compassion satisfaction and being able to orient towards that? And also, of course, just having acceptance strategies and being aware of what we can and can't control. And again, I think what Ali's saying is so critical that this is not just an individual solution. Individuals need to be powered and these tools can really help empower them in terms of finding their voice, but also on the organizational level. How much are we allowing people to be organized to collectively determine what they can benefit from and how much are we willing to collaborate. Thanks for that, Kristen. And I agree with you that MI has a vital role in strengthening not only individual effectiveness, but also strengthening work relations, the quality of supervision, leadership. Implementation really pays off. So Kristen, you're introducing the notion of the MI spirit and the four components of it as it relates to burnout. And maybe we could explore in a bit more detail about how is it that if a clinician, certainly if an organization is operating in a manner consistent with the MI spirit, how would that lead to lowered rates or reduced rates of burnout, compassion, fatigue, and some of these things that we're talking about? How does that actually work? Actually, we're right. Exactly. And so it sounds great, but how do we do this? <laughs> what does this look like? And there's actually one article I'd like to refer to that I'll have in the show notes that is one of the best I found that spoke to this. And it was an article called Care Coordinators in Integrated Care, Burnout Risk, Perceived Supports, and Job Satisfaction. And the primary author is Al AU, came out in 2018. And they were looking at burnout risk and job satisfaction reported among care coordinators. And I was particularly interested in this article because these folks are doing work that are typical of the work I certainly have done, but the people I train do. So many folks working in crisis support services, homelessness services, I should say unhoused folks, 
working with people with co-occurring conditions. And they were looking at when people feel job satisfaction, and they found actually a lot of people in this study actually were feeling pretty satisfied what was going on for them looking at these factors. And some of the factors that they thought that contributed to lower risk of burnout included appropriate training, especially on the particular coordinator's role and the complex conditions and diverse needs, right? And I found that to be so true when teaching and training motivational interviewing, like the spiritually important and how to actually use the skills, but how to actually put it into the context of what this person is doing in their job. How does this show up for you, person? Actually, I was talking about this yesterday in a coaching group, how empowering that is to have a sense of a skill, to be able to practice it and feel like you have such access to it in your toolbox when you need it. That right there just reduces so much stress. My trainees were talking about just feeling so much more comfortable, just knowing, oh, wait, I just made that link with this concept and how I'm really going to try it out. That's so powerful. They also found what was really important was having supportive supervisors and managers, probably no surprise there, but managers that can hear stress, that have a willingness. There's a lot systemically that supervisors and managers may not be able to immediately change in their environment, especially in public health services, speaking again here in the U.S., but maybe elsewhere as well. But there's things managers and supervisors can definitely do in terms of culture. There's ways we can still help people feel empowered in their culture, even allowing people to have certain voice, being able to share about difficulties, being able to kind of help shift conversations on things we can versus things we cannot do in our work. There's ways of being able to enhance that. And also another factor that was helping with burnout was just having support among colleagues and not working in a way that seems isolated, being able to have a sense of community. So I think motivational interviewing, this idea of being able to be transparent and to be willing to hear things, even things that are really uncomfortable, is part of that spirit, is a really powerful way of helping folks who are out there just be so genuine and be able to have access to the skills they need when they need them. Yeah, thanks for that, Kristen. And we certainly know that there's an inverse relationship between compassion and burnout. And it may be that our compassionate nature is what draws us into this work in the first place and may or may not make us more vulnerable to secondary trauma. And yet without that, we don't have as many protective factors as we might be able to access. Some other things that we know about work motivation generally are that the causes of satisfaction and dissatisfaction at work tend to be independent from one another. What we know leads to a meaningful experience at work is that the work itself is meaningful, that we have others who believe in our autonomy, that there's a sense of importance to the work that we do, as well as that we are important to the organization, that individuals matter, that people matter. So this idea that people are dispensable and replaceable and all of that, MI holds a very different point of view, which is a highly protective factor about the absolute worth that the whole person matters and makes a difference. So what we know too is beyond a certain salary, beyond enough or beyond adequate conditions, that when organizations put more into that, it doesn't necessarily make a difference or increase work satisfaction. The things that actually make a difference are things that are not as costly that relate to the human being and the integrity and absolute worth of the individual. And so we know that MI brings that. And if our interactions are infused with that in the workplace, both from top down all the way around, that MI is in the air and in the water of the organization. I think it makes a really big impact, not only to the bottom line, but to the quality 
of relationships and supporting protective factors. So something about the idea of our compassion maybe being a reflection of our sensitivity to other people's need and our desire to be willing to go into situations perhaps other people don't. It's almost like we're willing to go into emotional fires to support other people. But the risk you're describing is, is what happens to us when we're in fighting that emotional fire for somebody else or with somebody else. And what you're suggesting is the importance of us not trying to do that by ourselves, that the more we're in relation as social creatures, the more we're in relation with other people in meaningful relationships, the more protected we are to go in and to come back out and recharge our batteries, to go back in again, to come back out. It's where we're going in and coming out and being on our own that potentially the risks are increased for us and that we're picking up that vicarious trauma, that secondary trauma of someone else's pain. And just that whole shift in the culture, I guess a lot of people recognise the difference between the economic needs of an organisation which has to keep the lights on with the desire of the practitioners which is to be helpful and how those things can be almost like oil and water. It's that the organisation's needs and individual practitioners' needs and clients' needs may not always be balanced, but it's about how do we explore, how do you support the organisation know if you practice some of this, it will be financially better off. You will benefit financially as a consequence too because people will stay and work longer, stay more efficient and be more effective. And can we just continue to explore that in a wee bit more detail? How do you help organisations and practitioners do that? Because one of the things many of us will recognise as we introduce motivation and trainings, people will say, yeah, this is lovely, but I don't have the time or I'm busy enough. So the idea of introducing a new skill can sometimes be felt as an additional pressure itself because I'm already busy. And I'm just wondering, how do you support training groups and organisations begin to explore how to do this in a way that doesn't add to already busy lives? Right. There's almost a positioning here of, I can't afford to do MI. I'm too busy, I can't afford it. Try to find a thoughtful way of saying you can't afford not to do MI. And so, how to help with this idea of not MI as being an add on, but MI as being a bridge or a tool that actually is going to be able to help you get to what it is you want to do? Because it's so much about how do I engage maybe clients, but also how do I help keep my staff engaged? How do I help create this warm, friendly, and welcoming environment where people are feeling they can support each other in times of need? This is something that's, this is a recipe for that. This is what you're searching for. So in your day-to-day work, how can this be the way you do your day-to-day work? So when you do an interview, how can you start to include this? So Sometimes what I'll do is in the training, I try to get really specific, like pull in your challenges. What work do you do? Really just try to get clear about what might your typical assessment or typical conversation over here look like. And then how can we practice it in a way that's using these particular skills? I find folks need to have experiences, very concrete experiences. There's something else you said too, Glenn, I want to focus on because I think this is really important, which is just the importance of dialectical thinking of both and. So it's the folks get into this thing of I have to do this and motivational interviewing is going to be this something different and how to bring in, yes, got to keep the doors open and we can do this in terms of having compassion and towards our staff and towards others. So how do we bring them both together with a certain amount of acceptance that there's always going to be discomfort. There's always going to be something we can improve. That's what continuous quality improvement is all about too. And having that orientation around that. 
And there's one thing I'll say just really quickly also about this, to continue to answer your question, also thinking about this idea of, that I got from Charles Figley, who's really well known in the leaders of thinking about and researching compassion fatigue. And this is from an article wrote probably about, oh, about 14 years ago or so, but it's such an important article about this idea of how to increase compassion satisfaction, moving away from compassion stress to compassion satisfaction. And in this conversation, there is this idea of it's not about, well, let's just try to only focus on the happy things at work, right? Because that's not realistic and it's not sustainable and nobody's going to relate to that. But it's how do we take the real struggles we have and be honest about that and be genuine and be open, have a conversation while also spending time to really focus on our successes. So I can be looking at places where people are not doing well in our program. How can we engage them? This is a real problem. People are feeling burned out. How do we start to address that? And where do we see the places where we've had clinicians who have supported so many people in the community? And what kinds of stories do we have? Helping people tell their stories of successes, as well as those places of where we need to change. So there can be a both and. So the more we can increase our positivity ratio of those things of success, compassion, just successes in terms of great outcomes, right? To be able to focus on those, the more we can actually increase that ratio compared to the stressors, the more we're able to really flourish. And that's the idea of being able to find ways to help uh, staff flourish by shifting some of that focus. I love that, Kristen, and it's this idea that some organizations or systems might be drawn to promote or strengthen flourishing. It's also the case that some organizations and systems might be more drawn to tangible bottom line things or what's going to be different if I do this. And I may very well be the glue that holds everything together rather than something that we have to add or it's going to break our backs. But this may be a little bit of a long response. But when we think about the bottom line, the implications of burnout and secondary trauma globally costs more than $1 trillion in lost productivity. With life and death consequences, suicide rates for caregivers are 40% higher for men and 130% higher for women than in the general population, and caregivers are most susceptible to these things. Then it is the case that organizations without systems to support the well-being of their employees not only have higher turnover and lower productivity, but higher health care costs. Their employees are nearly three times as likely to seek a different job, more often to call in sick, and more often to visit emergency rooms. So if organizations take some of those things into account when they make decisions about what evidence-based practices should we employ, MI seems like an immediate solution to them. Some organizations, maybe I don't really care about all of that. I don't care about these aggregate statistics, but what I do care about is, can I reduce missed appointments? Can we reduce positive UAs? Can we increase the number of people to whom we give resources that they actually follow through on those things? Can we increase the number of times that someone comes knocking on the door and the person being served is willing to let them in? What level really speaks to the organization? Does an office need to have a focus group that does this and they implement and see how it goes and then roll it out to the entire organization? It doesn't have to be the whole apple at one time there are many ways to enter this and many reasons that people might want to think about this. Yeah. You're both really laying out global or more population based rationale, I suppose, for strengths-based MI like interventions, also systemic reasons or systemic ideas. If you have an intervention that works better, it would not be a huge leap to assume that 
the organization itself would do better from the business standpoint, which we don't do a whole lot of talking about business and finances on this podcast, but I think everyone can understand the reality that organizations really aren't going to succeed if the business side of it is at least okay, if not flourishing. So using an approach like MI might keep people engaged in treatment in a more consistent way. And there's evidence to suggest that there may be fewer missed appointments or late cancellations and things like that if the relationship between the provider and the clients are stronger and these sorts of things. In my own work and in my own institution, I've thought about the interventions for burnout have seemed to be more at the systemic or departmental level and things that are, I would imagine, helpful and welcomed, but things like wellness days, having a lot of language and terms of communication around being aware of one's own needs and to not risks of burnout, things like that. But I've often thought about the in the room burnout interventions that we might have or burnout prevention interventions. And if I could go back to those four elements of the MI spirit that you discussed, Kristen, it actually makes a lot of intuitive sense. And hopefully the research will support this as more research is done in this area. But if we were to take partnership, for instance, That's an important part of the MI spirit, one of the four elements. And you can imagine if you are in partnership with a client, that is a much different experience than certainly if you were in an adversarial relationship with the client. But even if you were in a positive relationship, but one where there was a great deal of burden on you for that person's outcomes, then that would be really hard. And if you multiply that one interaction by 50, if that was your caseload size, boy, that would be quite a burnout risk if you now had to carry this responsibility for someone else's well-being in that way that it's not that we don't care about people's outcomes in MI, but we engage people in this partnership, more egalitarian way, acceptance in the same way. If we can acknowledge and really understand that clients have the freedom to do what they like once they leave our offices and we really embrace that and use that as a way to engage with them, that's a much different way of being, much different emotional experience on the provider than if we felt like we had to control them and make sure that they never had another drink or never had another drug or whatever it might be. I just think that there's some really practical and intuitive links to the elements of the MI spirit that would help the the practitioner. So just curious what your thoughts are about that. Absolutely. And as we talk all the different levels of being able to prevent burnout, right? Like you said, systemically and organizationally and for individuals. I know for individual training, often there's this pressure. You can see it comes up with people like, I know I'm supposed to be evocative. I get this evocative. Then that becomes an issue, right? I'm supposed to be a certain way, but uh, I have productivity. And But what if they don't talk? Some people just don't talk and I'm supposed to be evocative or I try to partner with them and they won't say anything or they don't know. And so that in a way, weirdly, right? Like just even speaking about the spirit, sometimes folks get worried about if they're doing MI right. (laughs) (laughs) There's that coming up. So sometimes I just, let's just stop. Let's just breathe. And let's just think about a way of coming at our work with just incredible curiosity and wonder. And just almost even practicing that, just wondering with somebody or wondering about somebody or just, okay, someone doesn't want to talk so much, but they're here in the room. And sometimes it's just about visualizing, sitting with folks, visualizing, just sitting with the challenges 
and just continuing to breathe and continuing just to notice and to continue to think about what could I be curious about with this person. They're here for a reason. And what do they say non-verbally? And just helping practitioners relax out of the fix-it mode of having to somehow problem solve and move into this place of curiosity and wonder. And I also like to add a little piece here too for individual practitioners of being in touch with your own values. Being in touch with your own values whenever you do this work and always being connected to, at this point, regardless of what the organization wants, regardless of maybe a challenge I have engaging this person, how am what I'm doing right now, how does it help, how am I really working in a way that's consistent with who I want to be as a practitioner, whether that's compassionate, whether that's effective, just so there's this sense of being able to, even when the time of great darkness or times of great struggle, being able to make decisions that are around, okay, I'm here with this person and I'm still in a place where I'm feeling I'm working at my level of compassion or I'm working at my level of helping or whatever it is that someone finds important. Just because I think that's so protective for us to be able to always have our values as an anchor and be able to think about the words I say, the next intervention I do, how is that helping me be this. So that's sometimes a way I'll work with them, just almost having that visualization, imagining being in and giving permission just to slow it down, observe, maybe even take a step back. So there isn't all this internal pressure to somehow be in the spirit that doesn't become yet another stressor for someone. Yeah, I like that, Kristen. I feel like MI is a way of helping us become even more effective, finding more avenues to be effective with others. If my only self-worth, if my only efficacy comes from making sure this person achieves a certain outcome or that I really carry that person in all 50 and everybody else on my shoulders at all times. That's not only an impossible burden, but it closes off many other opportunities for us to be effective with others. So I guess I'm really feeling like MI is about bringing a sense of humility and right-sizing our role in people's lives. Sometimes in training with me, we may do some self-reflective activities or other kinds of training activities around the expert trap and the writing reflex. And even if well-intended, where does that go? How can we take our good intentions and use them in a more effective way, in a right-sized way, from a position of humility, of sharing expertise, sharing the table? The table's big enough for all the experts to come to it, whether it's us working with one person, with a group, with a family, We need all those voices to be heard, that the solutions that we're going to come up with together are going to be far more effective than the ones that I on my own will have available for that person. So I think it's a way of expanding and enlarging our effectiveness with others. And I guess opening that door has been one of the most profound things I have seen people make shifts around as they come away from MI training. I love that idea of becoming bigger as a consequence of learning experience and motivation viewing whether as a practitioner or whether as a client and it fits very much with we had a conversation earlier in our journey with Stan Stendel talking about compassion and Stan offered this beautiful insight to compassion he talked about his dad who was a civil engineer and said my dad showed compassion differently from how I do it his compassion as a civil engineer was ensuring that the buildings that he built were as safe as possible for other people. So it sounds like there's this universal source called compassion. How each one of us individually may manifest that will depend on the roles we have within the human hive. 
And for us helpers, it's the instinct to be helpful to people around an emotional level, around behavioural level. Whereas accountants, their compassion is about making sure that the business stays in the black and that there's enough money to keep everything going. So when we're talking to accountants, we're not trying to turn them into a therapist. But what we're going to explore is how can you do what you do well, taking into account that these relational factors could actually save you money and help you to flourish as a practitioner of accountancy to make this business really, really profitable. And alongside of that is the whole consequence, I guess, of from a practitioner perspective, given the fact that, in my experience, people who are in the helping game probably have what I describe as a higher sensitivity to other people's distress. And as a consequence of that, we're not only coming into contact with, but we're experiencing their distress on a much more acute level within ourselves. And I wonder what thoughts you have or ideas you have about how do you support people begin to recognise the difference between themselves and maybe other people in the hive and how do you maintain where they're actually taking on board this secondary trauma? How do you help them differentiate? Is this yours or is this somebody else's? I'm going to offer that. And I love your question, Glenn. I'll offer that to Kristen because I know she's got something to say about that. I'm not surprised. I know she has something to say about this. But I just wanted to make an observation about video conference fatigue. And one of the things that I think we need to be a little kinder to ourselves about these days, especially as helpers, we're more attuned to visual, verbal, other cues. And if we're a foot and a half away or a meter and a half away, even at best, from a video screen all day long, we're taking in a lot of data and we're wearing down the precious resources that we have. And if we say yes to every single request and every meeting that comes up, I've got time so I can fill it. All of a sudden, this is a schedule creep thing where we just say yes, 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 yes. At the end of the day, we're absolutely worn out by everything that we're taking in and attending to in a way that's different than if we were in person or if we actually took breaks away from the video conference platform. Fantastic tool. I'm not going to let it go myself. I just think we have to bring a little bit more self-compassion and think about some very practical strategies for helping ourselves in these moments of being able to step away and provide buffers, not only during video conferencing, but at the ends of our days to transition to the rest of our lives. And anyway, but I know Kristen is very eager to respond directly to your question. Great. Thank you, Ali. Yes. I actually have an exercise. I do visualizations with folks, right, about boundary creation and just imagining ourselves being in a compassionate relationship, but also having boundaries. Again, it's about the both and. Like I can be in a relationship with you, but also be able to have some sense of bringing in what your energy is and being able to have some boundary, but I'm also sending out my own helping. And there's all kinds of visualizations around this. There's one I can actually do right now if you like. Um, yes, just to, this is from a Buddhist tradition, but it's been brought into a lot of different practices and more secular practices. And it's from called Tonglen Meditation Idea. And it's, it's a beautiful way, I think, and I do it a lot. It's helpful to also have in terms of training or own staff. Great thing to do at the beginning of a staff meeting, even helping people practice this. And you can do it alone. You can just actually even right now just sit and notice your breath, not even feeling like you need to change your breath, but just noticing Focus on your breathing and just be present, breathing in and breathing out. And if distracting thoughts come up, just go ahead and notice them and let them go. Continuing to breathe. Now I'm going to invite you to link your intention to your breath. 
And on your exhale, breathe out the light of basic goodness, your wish to help alleviate pain and suffering. And on the inhale, invite the smoky darkness of negativity and suffering to enter your heart where it will be transformed into light. Maybe bring to mind some pain that you've helped someone with, things that you've noticed. And just noticing where that pain is and breathing it in and exchanging maybe that pain, that sadness, that loss, and just breathing out the light of freedom and peace. Imagine as you breathe, breathe in that pain and transform it into light and compassion, breathing it out to maybe that person, to the universe, to yourself. And just noticing the breathing in and the breathing out of compassion. Now you can just come back and just sit with whatever that brings up in the moment. Just noticing what's coming up for you now. I love the idea and the invitation to see ourselves as somehow a process of converting one energy to another through our intention. Yeah. That we're willing to accept that there is pain, there is darkness, there is loss in the world. And that by allowing ourselves to accept that, but also to celebrate the gift of our own creativity, of our own positivity, of our own internal light, that we can begin to help transform that, not just for ourselves, but for everyone through our intention of just paying attention. really is. And just even with that simple couple minutes of just doing that, I notice for myself, I start to feel so less stressed and so less exhausted and so much more like I have a superpower. I just visually just what brings up for me emotionally and just physically it's a powerful change. That was just a couple minutes of doing that. And again, that doesn't solve all our problems. There's other things we always have to work on, but it's all about putting all this into a toolbox and having access to it. I tell my students a lot, we are our tool. So we have to keep our tool well-functioning and working and you know, honor that fact and that this idea of self-care, sometimes it can feel so shallow, but that it's something that we have to do. I call it radical self-care. We have to do something every day, even if it seems like the smallest thing, like this daily maintenance. Talk about that wellness recovery action planning, which is also an evidence-based practice that's used to help maintain wellness. It came out of the mental health recovery movement about 25 years ago. And RAP has a great connection here with MI and this whole idea of how do we have control of ourselves and our wellness and that we can actually have some ways of being able to put things together that we know we can do every day to keep us functioning, keep us happy, keep us vital. Thank you, Kristen. That was really beautiful. Just to offer an additional option. This is from a new resource called Motivational Interviewing for Mental Health Practitioners a toolkit for skills enhancement. This is a practitioner tool called a self-compassion break. So I would invite you to think of a current life or work struggle that's causing you distress. And please place one or both hands over your heart. While still holding the struggle in mind, say to yourself, this is a moment of suffering. 
Suffering is part of life. May I be kind to myself in this moment. May I give myself the compassion I need. Thank you both, Kristen and Allie, for offering those meditations. Both, I could imagine people using them in the moment, listening to this episode as a break for themselves, but also introducing concepts and ideas, idea of noticing and curiosity and the breathing in and breathing out. And it can be a fill in the blank. You can breathe in and breathe out anything that you like. And Allie, your offering of suffering as something that we can acknowledge. We don't necessarily have to fight against it. It's part of humanity. And maybe in the accepting of that, that can be a reduction in the burden that we take on so often. So we've done a bit of exploring. We've been discussing burnout reduction at an organizational level. We've talked a bit about things more recently here on the individual level, whether it's in the room way of thinking about it, and also some of these exercises that you both offered. What about some other organizational strategies that institutions or departments might be able to employ to help the culture or the practitioners that work in those settings? Yeah, thank you, Seth. And looking Again, to some of the literature, including current, I think, comments about what are we going to do about folks now they're getting through this pandemic and people are really struggling. And I think what's hard is where do we get started? There's so much. And there's some things that are relatively low-hanging fruit, so to speak, or things that might be able to occur more quickly than others. And one thing that I think could be helpful is if there's any opportunity in meetings or in other settings, even some of the online things that we're doing now, to give practitioners an opportunity to share their successful experiences, to get to shift more towards places where people have been successful and have seen things that have really given them some satisfaction. And that during times too, even in case sessions, a lot of times we're often talking about some of our challenges and things we need help with, always getting back to what's some of the positive meaning about any of this, and even just the willingness sometimes to be engaged in the struggle is an aspect of positivity and the strength that any practitioner has to approach some very challenging situations. That in and of itself is amazing. And to be able to really very intentionally reflect on that. Some other recommendations that have come out of some of the work I've been reading on compassion fatigue, again, some of these articles will be in the show notes, include to the extent that we can do this is caseload variety and helping people even move around and have uh, maybe point of view, get a different perspective in an agency, especially if you can't give a lot of extra time off necessarily, but that might be a helpful thing. But really also very much trying to problem solve appropriate time off. Ultimately, we do need breaks and time off and working so hard, it just feels like it's a never ending amount of work. And yet when we have breaks, making sure we take breaks, making sure we're giving people breaks and that breaks are real breaks. A culture starts to develop and reminders occur and out of office messaging around, I'm going to be gone, I will not be checking my messages. Those kinds of boundaries right now are extremely critical. And these are things that we can get started on relatively easily without a lot of investment and other types of resources. Kind of what Ali was talking about earlier, there's a lot of solutions that don't require tons of extra resource or finance. Thanks for that, Kristen. I agree with you that honoring and respecting restorative breaks that don't require a diagnosis to access are really helpful for increasing compassion in the workplace. And it becomes to be part of the culture. We're not just prizing those who can humble brag about the most number of hours, this and this and this. And where that is less prized, where there were self-care and self-compassion and restorative breaks start to be prized in the culture 
That's a bit of a shift. And it's that both and thing again, that individuals have to be encouraged to do this and organizations have to have to honor and respect and prize those kinds of things. We can also think of some organizations are beginning to do self-reflective things or encouraging employees to do self-reflective things at the close of the day that really provides some sort of role clarification, prospection into transitioning from your day into the rest of your life. One of the things that's been true in the pandemic is that not only are we managing and coping and listening and often being immersed in the stresses of others, and those are the same stresses we are now going home to ourselves. There used to be this thing of, well, at least I can leave it at the office or something. Not the case if we're experiencing the same thing. There's never really a respite from it. So just recognizing those kinds of strains, maybe also things that we're experiencing in our own lives. So to really create a demarcation between work and life. Harder to do when working from home. There are all kinds of tools and strategies for helping people who work mainly by computer to even do rituals of closing down, (laughs) setting a blanket over the computer and putting it to bed so that you could move on to the rest of your life. All kinds of individual strategies. But I think organizations have to be part of encouraging people to honor and respect their own absolute worth and feel honored and respected for taking time, then it is actually a good thing, not only for the individual, but also for the ultimate health and well-being of the organization. And certainly for those that we serve, no question about that. A more refreshed and restored clinician is better for everyone in all directions, all the way around. Mm. And I guess one of the messages that have really rung home for me in this conversation is just the importance of acceptance that after 16 months of a global pandemic, there is a lot of stress, there is a lot of fear, there's a lot of confusion alongside of the opportunities that have been presented. And that the invitation is, can I begin to witness that without judgment? Can I recognise this is all true? And it brings me back to something someone once said to me about the yin and yang symbol, which was the light and the yin is not that it's not an attempt to turn the darkness into light. It's simply an invitation for those who are enlightened to stay enlightened during the darkest of times. And it's almost like the invitation for us as practitioners is don't try and change the world by rushing out into the world because that's where the trauma exists. One of the things that we can do for ourselves is first of all recognise this is the way it is right now. That in itself is beyond my control. But what is within my control is how I look after myself as I begin to help looking after other people. So it's back to that both and and. It's including myself. How do I include myself in all of the people I take care of and how important that is for you as an individual practitioner, whether you're working in the accounts department or whether you're working with individuals who have trauma in their lives. And I think it's such an important message for us to hear. And we really appreciate you coming along sharing it. And as always the case, we would and could continue to talk longer and longer, but time has caught up with us. And at this point, we usually ask our guests two questions, the first of which is, what else has happened perhaps in your life that may be motivation-oriented or something else, but just what else is going on for you that's catching your attention that you might want to share with us? 
I think a lot about this. There's a lot going on that I'm interested in, but in service of this idea of balance, I want to talk about something professional, something personal really quickly. And professionally, I'm a counselor educator. And one of the things I'm working on is decentering the dominant culture and all of our psychology work, which is really a powerful exercise, like trying to find how to make my curriculum anti-racist and less white focus and heteronormative, all these pieces, like really trying to bring in voices that have been minoritized, which means I'm basically in the process of rewriting everything and it's really challenging, but I'm excited about doing it and looking at all the different ways of really supporting that process and knowing that I'm very privileged to be in a place where I can do that in a community where I can do that and knowing that I have colleagues in this country that are really struggling with being able to bring in things like critical race theory. So I'm very much interested in all of that and looking forward to doing that very challenging task and recognizing that's going to be a hard process. And personally, also related to environmental pieces, I am just really benefiting from being outside and having been outside these last 16 months or so and redoing my garden because I'm in a place right now where we don't have a lot of water. So trying to figure out how to continue to thrive, even though the world around us is changing and just loving and realizing how much I thrive in nature and carrying that forward now that we're able to go out a little bit more. Oh, thanks for that, Kristen. And Glenn, I'm glad you brought up the, it keeps arising, isn't it? The both and, and it feels to me like the more accepting we are of the paradox in our life, the greater chance we have of transcending and being in a better place together. Appreciate everybody, Glenn and Seb and Kristen and everybody who's joining in on this. I do a little bit of swimming and I'm preparing for some longer swims these days. So that is a absolutely a rewarding and uh, never-ending challenge in my life. Uh, more towards the MIR professional world, I am making every effort possible to collaborate with others. It is such an exciting time to be able to do that. And I may have been a little bit hard on video conferencing earlier in this episode, but I just want to give a great big shout out to the ability to collaborate across time zones and to be with others in doing good work. So very appreciative of that. Also working on supporting and generating diverse and inclusive materials in the MI world and beyond. Some things I've been thinking about specifically in the MI world are strengthening the bridge to planning, as well as expanding and enlarging the conversation focused to the person's cherished directions, and also to incorporate collective and individual intentions within the focusing process. There may be a way that the individual can solve things by themselves, and there may be some things that require more of a collective orientation. Those are just some things on my mind these days. Mm. Well, some exciting potential additions and how we understand and practice MI, certainly, and also some really cool examples of self-care and just passions that you both have in terms of gardening and swimming. So hope to hear about that more as time goes on and hopefully someday soon face-to-face MI Forum. Who knows when we'll have our next one, but soon enough, hopefully. Kristen and Allie, we also, as we're winding things down, we ask our guests if our audience had any questions and they wanted to reach out to you both, would you be interested in that? And if so, how can people contact you? Yes. And we'll attach in the show notes, our email, also on Facebook and on Twitter and on LinkedIn. If we go searching for you on Facebook or Twitter, what are your handles? It's Kristen Dempsey and Kristen with two eyes. That's an important distinction. And 
just some slight different numbers there if I'm not actually the only Kristen Dempsey out there, but I search myself and I tend to pop to the top. So it might be Kristen Dempsey LMFT or Kristen Dempsey LPCC. Those are my licenses that might occur as well, but I will have the direct links. And I have a simple email address that will be in the show notes. I'd love to hear from folks. And LinkedIn would be the social media way to reach me. Fantastic. And we really appreciate that. And Seb, if you could just remind people how people can stay in touch with us. Twitter, it's at Change Talking. Facebook, it's Talking to Change. Instagram, Talking to Change podcast. And direct communication via email would be with podcast at glenhines.com. Fantastic. And given the topic that we're exploring today, we're conscious that we have two colleagues working alongside of each other, producing another webinar series, Professor Stephen Ronick, who, of course, is one of the co-founders, co-founders of Motivation Interviewing and a previous guest of ours, along with his colleague, Joel Porter, who is also a member of the Motivation Driven Network of Trainers. And we know that they have recently produced an episode of their webinar series, Motivation Driven and Beyond, looking at, at this topic as well. So that may be another resource people may want to tap into, Motivation Driven and Beyond. With that, then, can I just say thank you both, Kristen and Ali, for your time and for sharing your wisdom and guiding us into an awakening and awareness of what it is that we as individuals, as part of organisations and part of a global community can be doing to reduce the burden of pain and trauma within ourselves and with each other. So we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, all of you. It's a joy to be here this morning and it's a wonderful conversation. I look forward to hearing from others out there who are also interested in furthering wellness in our community. Thank you, Glenn and Seb and Kristen and everyone who's joining us. It has been an absolute delight for me, and I look forward to hearing from y'all. Thanks so much, Kristen and Allie. And Glenn, as always, until next time. Until next time. Good to see you. Thanks, everybody. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.